Welcome to the October 31st, 2018 edition of the BitcoinNews.com Daily Podcast, where we cover the biggest stories of Bitcoin, blockchain, and cryptocurrency every single day, forever. You could count on us being here. This is your host, Space Marine, live from somewhere in the solar system, jumping right into the market analysis. So, Bitcoin had a bit of a drop on October 29th, two days ago. It went from 6,400 about to almost 6,200, steady down near 6,250. And the market was extremely stable before this drop for like 10 days, it was at like practically 6,400. And after this drop, the pattern looks very similar, it's extremely stable. So once the drop stabilized during the 29th, it's been right around 6,250, maybe 6,250 to 6,300 range. Even less than that, like it's probably like a $30 trading range right now. So the Bitcoin market continues to be very stable and that drop that happened on the 29th seemed to be like an isolated event. Not even caused by like any news or anything. It was probably just like one whale, someone with a lot of Bitcoins dumping Bitcoins to cash out for something. Maybe they bought like a Lambo with like a jet, with a helicopter, with like a military force plus like a mansion. So that could cause a bit of a market drop. As for the rest of the crypto market, it's the market cap slightly below 203 billion for all the cryptocurrencies combined. Keep in mind, this is slightly overinflated because there's a lot of coins that have market caps of like $10 million or $100 million that have practically no volume. So if anyone would actually try to cash out those coins, it would be like, it wouldn't work very well. So most of the market cap is actually Bitcoin at $110 billion market cap. Ethereum has a $20 billion market cap. Ripple has a 17 or $18 billion market cap. But even there, Ripple, most of it's held by the Ripple Foundation and Ripple Labs and all the other people that own Ripple. So... Yeah, like, I think the market cap is probably around $150 billion in reality, or maybe 170 or something, when you add up all the real viable market cap. But maybe I should write about that in another story. I'm not going to speculate too much here on that. Tether has returned to parity. It's back to a dollar per Tether. Yet, people have sold, a, well, redeemed another $100 million to Tether. So before this whole crisis began, there was 2.8 billion Tether in circulation, and now there's 1.8 billion. Other stablecoins like USD Coin, which was launched by Circle and Coinbase, are gaining traction. But now that Tether's back to where it should be, maybe it'll be harder for those other stablecoins to in keep increasing at the rate they were. And this is related to Bitfinex, because Tether and Bitfinex are intimately re related. And Bitfinex's premium is down to like $60. So Bitfinex has returned to within 1% of the global average and getting closer every day as their fiat deposits go back to normal. So like all the worry, and I even got worried that Bitfinex was having serious problems, especially when it happened. But it looks like Bitfinex will survive and is totally fine at this time, which is great news. They're the biggest USD exchange in the world for Bitcoin. Speaking of USD exchanges, Coinbase has now hit a valuation of $8 billion dollars following a $300 million investment round. So this was the Series E equity round, and I believe it's like Series A, B, C, D, E. So this is probably the fifth round of investments, like on a major scale for Coinbase. And in the summer of 2017, before the big rally, Coinbase has had an estimated valuation of $1.5 billion. It's increased 433% to $8 billion. And this investment round was led by Tiger Global Management, and it included investors from Andreessen Horowitz, which is called A16Z, Y Combinator Continuity, Wellington Management, and Polychain. 
So Coinbase says they're going to use this money for global expansion. They're going to try to open up in all the regulated markets in the world. They've already done some of that. I believe they are overseas in some countries, like in the United Kingdom. I've read some articles that they started doing like Great Britain pounds and stuff. So they're going to be trying to expand like everywhere where they can. And then they're also going to use the money to accelerate the addition of as many crypto assets as possible. We've already been talking about this. So Coinbase first said, yeah, we're going to add all the cryptocurrencies that are legal in each jurisdiction. So like if a cryptocurrency is not legal somewhere, but Coinbase is open somewhere else, they're going to you know put it where it's legal and not have it where it's illegal. So, and they already added 0x in USD coin. And that was during the month of October, which is coming to a close now. And that was just the beginning, a small taste of Coinbase adding hundreds of cryptos. According to the president of Coinbase, Asif Herji, he says, We see hundreds of cryptocurrencies that could be added to our platform today, and we will lay the groundwork to support thousands in the future. This is really impressive because Coinbase has $1.3 billion of revenue projected in 2018. And that was only with like five cryptocurrencies. Now it might be like seven. So they have like seven cryptocurrencies now, but before they had five cryptocurrencies. So... Now they're going to have hundreds or thousands probably in like a year from now. Probably hundreds or like over a hundred. So the Coinbase might actually like start becoming a real global competitor if they're expanding to global markets. And they've already been making so much money off like such a small selection of coins in the United States. So we'll see what happens with that. And then they also say they're going to use this investment money to build infrastructure to target institutional investors. So Coinbase already launched Coinbase. Coinbase Custody, which is now Qualified Custodian in the United States, and that's hard to obtain. And institutional investors need Qualified Custodians to safely store the cryptocurrency. And also, institutional investors want hedge funds, like pretty much like money managers designed for crypto. And they also want proper investment products. And it appears Coinbase is going to try to do all of these things. They want to be like an all-in-one institutional investment solution. And the experts have said over and over this year... That institutional investment will lead to the next big crypto rally. We're still waiting for it, but it seems like everything's being put in place for that. And then the final thing that Coinbase says they're going to use this $300 million for is to build new crypto apps, like crypto utility applications, such as the Coinbase wallet. And they're going to engage in partnerships to build new crypto and blockchain technology. And USD coin was a small taste of these sort of partnerships. They partnered with Circle to launch a new stable coin that's far more regulated than Tether, it seems. Now for our next story. So the creator of Ethereum ERC-20 proposes reversible ICOs. So Fabian Vogelsteller is the creator of ERC-20. I did not know that until yesterday. And ERC-20 is so very important for Ethereum because it, it's a, such an easy way to create a uh, secure cryptocurrency that runs on the Ethereum blockchain. Like it probably takes like 10 minutes if you know what you're doing, maybe like one minute. So you can launch any cryptocurrency you want with maybe like a few dollars of Ethereum, maybe like 20 bucks, I don't know. It depends on the day. So with ERC-20, a smart contract is created. And this could be used for initial coin offerings because people could send money to the smart contract and then receive the new tokens. So they send Ether to the smart contract and they get the new token in return. That's an initial coin offering. And this has led to $20 billion investments into initial coin offerings in the past two years. Fabian Vogelsteller is quite responsible for leading to this. And it's been good. It's been a boon for the entire crypto space. But a small fraction... Or maybe, you know, a sizable fraction, not a majority, of ICOs has ended up not delivering on the promises. Or in the worst case scenario, they ended up being, like, total scams. And Vogelsteller says he feels obligated to come up with something better. Since if he did not create ERC-20, it would be much harder to, like, launch a scam ICO. And it would be, like, 
a lot less frequent. It would take a lot of work, and most of these scammers don't even have the expertise or the motivation to put the work in to launch a real cryptocurrency. But VRC20 is like a click of a button, so a lot of people have been doing that. So now he's saying he's launching reversible initial coin offerings, RICOs. So reversible initial coin offerings would allow investors to send their tokens back at any time to the smart contract and get back the ether that they invested. Like the original amount of ether that they invested will come back to them if they send the tokens back to the smart contract. So basically this gives the initial coin offering that uses an RICO strong motivation to actually deliver on the promises because right now, you know, they get like a ton of money and Vogelsteller says, yeah, they're blinded by the money and they buy Lambos and they, you know, they go partying or whatever and, you know, they totally ignore what they're supposed to be doing. They just get excited that they got rich. They ignore what they're doing. But with an RICO, uh, the organization would know that they better deliver on their promises or all that money's going to disappear. Like how it should be in real life when, like, there's security, you know, like the SEC and such make sure that people don't just steal the investments. So this is kind of like a technological blockchain way of making sure investors can get their money back, like in real life, in the fiat world. So he says, you are able to withdraw the funds you committed at any point of time, and you do this by simply sending back your tokens. It brings a balance back between the community and the project, and I think this is really important. So if our ICOs are implemented, the catastrophic ICO failures we have seen due to mismanagement or fraud, they'll be a thing of the past. An RICO project that fails will just fail naturally, and the investors won't be hurt. They won't go down with the ship. Unlike now, where the ICOs, when they go down, the investors go down with the ship, and it's a huge catastrophe with tons of fighting on the internet. So, this would really improve the ICO scene. The one thing I'm really confused about, and is unclear, is that how would you balance this? Because if 100%, well, let's say... For investors to get a 100% refund from an RICO, that means the RICO can never touch the Ether that is invested in the first place, and that doesn't make sense. Why would you do an ICO or RICO if you can't touch the investment and can't use it to you know grow the platform? So I, I don't think it's exactly like what's described. Like He said some comments about it at a conference. That's where this information comes from. I don't think he revealed the full package here, what's going on. So... But he is going to demonstrate an RICO. He's launching his own design, fashion and design blockchain called Lusco. Vogelsteller is launching Lusco. And he's going to demonstrate an RICO in real life. And at that point, I think we're going to under, understand RICOs better. And since he is the creator of ERC-20, instead of thinking that his concept is bad based on the little bit of information that is out there, it's better just to wait to see him do it. Because he is such a genius based on, you know, he created ERC-20, which is so important in the crypto world. Now for our next story. So the frequency of Bitcoin transactions has increased 50% since April 2018, but the fees have not increased. So this is good news for scalability, and it shows how SegWit and transaction batching have made Bitcoin more scalable. So yes, like when you look at the Bitcoin transaction frequency chart, you actually see like a one-week oscillation in transaction frequency. It's really noticeable, so it's kind of hard to make an average, but you can eyeball it. And... April 2018, there was 165 Bitcoin transactions per day, and that was at the beginning of April 2018, and this steadily increased to 245,000 transactions per day, like now, in late October 2018. That's a 48.5% increase, but this is just an eyeball estimate, so the point to get here is that the transaction frequency for Bitcoin has just about doubled since April, and that's big news. That actually shows the Bitcoin network is really healthy. 
Simultaneously, the transaction fees have not gone up at all. Since late July, or actually since early July, the transaction fee has been less than 25 cents per transaction. So that's pretty amazing. It allows a fluid ecosystem for Bitcoin where people don't have to worry about transaction fees eating up their money. Bitcoin can practically be used for micropayments in this environment. And in general, since April, transaction fees have been decreasing. Like there have been some events between like April and early July where the transaction fees spiked, especially in late June or middle June. So that has kind of gone away, even though the transaction frequency is going up, the fees have been decreasing during that time, basically. Why haven't we seen an increase in transaction fees despite this 50% increase in transaction frequency? Well, segregated witness was implemented, and the adoption for that is rapidly increasing. It's nearing, like, it's going to near 100% of all of the Bitcoin wallets will be used SegWit soon. And basically how SegWit works, it, there was a block size limit of 1 million bytes, 1 megabyte before, but that SegWit turns it into 1 million units, and it separates the signature data, which is called the witness, from the Merkle tree and only counts signature data as one-fourth of a unit. And this has caused the average maximum block size to increase from 1 megabyte to 1.2 to 1.3 megabytes. But there's been some blocks in excess of 2 megabytes. So, you know, it allows more transactions into each block when SegWit is enabled and that reduces transaction fees. As for these blocks bigger than 2 megabytes, or actually bigger than 1.2 to 1.3 megabytes in general, and sometimes really rarely bigger than 2 megabytes, this is due to batching. And transaction batching is when you take several Bitcoin transactions and merge it into a single Bitcoin transaction. You can actually take thousands of Bitcoin transactions and merge it into one with batching. I think the record's like 14,000, something like that. That's what I remember. So 14,000 transactions into one transaction. It saves a lot of space. The transaction will still be huge, but it's a lot less space used up than if you sent them all individually. So the combination of SegWit and transaction backchain adoption is what has led to this sort of scalability. So so how close is Bitcoin to reaching its capacity again? Because it, at this rate, it will reach its capacity again eventually. And then other things will have to be done for scalability. And I'm, I mean like in the next year, it's not gonna be like that far in the future. At this rate, it will reach its capacity. So the average daily block size is extremely volatile. It's hard to estimate an average block size for a week or month, but in general, there's an uptrend since April from like roughly 0.6 megabytes, like really eyeballing it to 0.95 megabytes currently. But here's the big difference that you can notice on the charts before, like in late February, like from like December, November to like February, the block size wasn't very volatile. It was just like consistently above one megabyte and that caused a transaction fee crisis. So when Bitcoin hits its capacity, the block size daily stops being a volatile chart and becomes just a very steady chart near one megabyte. That is not happening right now. So as long as it remains volatile, that means there's like most days are below one megabyte. So there's never more than like one day where we're at capacity and there's always a day where all the transactions could go through. And there's hours during the day, too. So, like, even during a high-capacity day where it's above one megabyte on average, there's plenty of blocks to allow the other transactions through. We're going to be in trouble at the point where the chart goes back to be consistently above one megabyte, like, in a straight line. That's going to happen probably eventually. But I think second-layer solutions like Lightning Network, which allow off-chain transactions that are just as secure as Bitcoin, apparently and supposedly... So people will want to start using these second-layer solutions instead of ramping up the transaction fees on the chain because that's what happened. Like, there was no second-layer solution like Lightning Network available during that transaction fee crisis, which peaked in December 2017, where fees were in excess of $30. I think it was up to $50 at one point. So 
I think people would choose to use Lightning Network and do off-chain transactions for barely no fee instead of like competing with each other and causing the fees to spike up again. So I think Bitcoin's ready. So it's been very scalable without even second layer solutions for now. And then the second layer solutions are ready. So it's been scalable due to SegWit and transaction batching. And then we got the second layer solution of Lightning Network ready. So I believe Bitcoin will be good long term as far as scalability goes, but we will see. And we'll keep talking about it on the show. All right, so a scientific paper has been released that says Bitcoin will cause catastrophic global warming. But this paper, which is titled Bitcoin Emissions Alone Could Push Global Warming Above 2 Degrees Celsius, is filled with inaccuracies. And so we're just going to go through all of these. I wrote the article. It's going to be published on Bitcoin News today. So basically the Paris Agreement, which was signed by 176 countries, says that when global warming, anthropogenic global warming exceeds 2 degrees Celsius, and it will be catastrophic. And they say in the paper that we're talking about, they mentioned that drought, wildfires, storms, heatwaves, floods, and sea sea level rise will become more common if that 2 degrees Celsius threshold is breached. And just going right into the weather aspects of the sea levels will rise because the ice caps will be melting. Heat waves will become more common because the earth will be hotter. But for like drought, floods, storms, they will shift locations because as the earth's temperature heats up, it changes large scale atmospheric circulation patterns like the Hadley cell and such. So storms will shift locations, droughts and floods will shift locations. Not necessarily increase. This paper just says they're going to increase. They broad brush it really badly. Just to start off the paper, they would say something incorrect meteorologically. Like, for example, places that like didn't have floods before might start getting floods, but at the same time, a place that had floods and was plagued by floods might be relieved of their flooding problems. If you know global warming goes above 2 degrees Celsius, it probably will, just from other things. But they're saying Bitcoin's going to cause it, so that's what we're going into. So 584.4 gigatons of carbon dioxide were released by human activity mostly from the burning of fossil fuels from 1860 to 2014. And simultaneously, there's been a 0.9 degrees Celsius global temperature rise. And you can't attribute all of this to anthropogenic global warming because solar cycles, changes in solar heating and the spectrum of radiation hitting the Earth. And uh, and there's nonlinear systems in the ocean and atmosphere that also play essential roles in the climate change. So you can't just say, hey, we released these greenhouse gases, 584.4 gigatons of carbon dioxide, and that's what led fully to the 0.9 degrees Celsius global warming. I just want to clarify that. Yes, carbon dioxide blocks long-wave infrared radiation from going out to space, reflecting back to the Earth, which warms the planet. And for global warming is real, but it does not account for 100% of global temperature changes. I just want to make that clear. So the paper estimates that it will take 231.4 to 744.8 gigatons of carbon dioxide may released to reach that 2 degrees Celsius threshold where global warming becomes catastrophic, according to some people. And this seems appropriate, actually, because it's a nonlinear system in the ocean and atmosphere, and they need a huge range like that. So there's this site called Dish Economist, which is referenced in the paper. We've talked about Dish Economist before, I believe, on the show. And they, Dish Economist assumes that 60% of Bitcoin mining revenue is spent on operational costs, specifically electricity. And at the rate of 5 cents per kilowatt hour and 0.7 gram, kilograms of CO2 released per kilowatt hour, this yields a yearly emission of 33.5 megatons of carbon dioxide annually. And But however, Dish Economist, so they said 33.5 megatons of CO2. But then there was a study in June 2018 that found the real energy consumption of Bitcoin is like half of what Dish Economist says. And beyond that... 
Digital Economist does not account for the fact that Bitcoin mining uses renewable energy like hydroelectric and geothermal a lot because near large sources of geothermal hydroelectric power, the power is cheaper. So there's a huge Bitcoin mining like aggregation near renewable energy sources. And that releases a lot less carbon dioxide, like a fraction, a small fraction of carbon dioxide compared to fossil fuels. So Dish Economist's estimate of carbon dioxide emissions from Bitcoin mining is like uh, over 100% more than reality, probably. But then the paper we're discussing now that says Bitcoin's going to cause catastrophic global warming, they did their own calculations after referencing Dish Economist and somehow came up with 60 ton- 69 megatons of carbon dioxide per year from Bitcoin mining. More than double Dish Economist's estimate, which is shocking because there was another study that shows Digicomus is more than double reality. So now we're talking like quadruple reality or five times reality in this paper just to start. And then the paper extrapolates what Bitcoin mining emissions will become. They take an average of dishwashers, electricity, and credit card to estimate how fast Bitcoin will proliferate globally. And they reference how there's 314.2 billion cashless transactions per year and Bitcoin represents 0.033% of that according to them. And they say that Bitcoin will represent all the cashless transactions in less than 100 years. So that's where they're getting this from. So they're taking the, you know, 69 megatons of carbon dioxide, which is like an overestimate, is 0.033% of all the cashless transactions. And they're saying, okay, now we're going to multiply all the way up to 100%. Basically. But here's where it really goes wrong completely, besides the fact that their estimates of carbon dioxide emission are probably way off. So for Bitcoin to achieve 314.2 billion transactions per year, it would have to be that would need 6 million transactions per block. 6 million transactions every 10 minutes into each block. And so right now we have some totally full blocks. And they're bigger than usual. Most blocks don't have more than 2,000 transactions. But some of the totally full blocks at 1.2 megabytes have 3,000 transactions. So the block size would have to be 2.4 gigabytes if there's 3,000 3, transactions equals 1.2 megabytes. And that's a little generous. We're probably more talking like 3 gigabyte block sizes. So we could have 314.2 billion transactions per year. So this is like really insanity. Bitcoin would be unsustainable at that. Like it wouldn't work because it, could, it would become undecentralized because anyone trying to run it on a personal computer would totally not be able to run it because you have to store the whole blockchain to run Bitcoin. So they would never increase the block size. I don't think they're going to increase the block size beyond where it is now ever. The key is to build second layer solutions like Lightning Network rather than increase the block size because the more you increase the block size, the harder it is to download Bitcoin, which is already very hard to download because of how huge the blockchain is getting. And this paper just totally ignores the fact that they obviously have no idea how Bitcoin works. And I think it's ridiculous they're saying it's going to cause catastrophic global warming if they don't even know that, hey, it can't, like, possibly, mining cannot scale to, like, process this many transactions per year ever. Like, period. It would have to be on the Lightning Network. So, the end result of this paper's calculations, we just described all the ways the calculations are messed up. They said Bitcoin mining will cumulatively release 500 plus gigatons of carbon dioxide by 2040. And that's equivalent to all of humanity's CO2 emissions since 1860. So they're saying in like the next 20 years or so, Bitcoin mining is going to equal all of humanity's carbon dioxide emissions. That's very ridiculous, I think. And they're saying by 2060, it's going to be in excess of 1,000 plus gigatons of carbon dioxide cumulatively released by Bitcoin mining. So for about 40 years. So they're saying like every 20 years, it's like all of humanity's emissions from 1860 to 2014. So in 20 years, it's going to equal all of humanity's emissions of greenhouse gases for like a 150 plus year period. It's really ridiculous calculation. And I don't know how this got into nature. Nature is a very reputable scientific journal. I am a scientist, so I know that. 
But yeah, Nature usually doesn't publish things unless they're very accurate. And this is extremely inaccurate. The calculations are way off. And then they're using these really inaccurate calculations to make a statement that Bitcoin will cause catastrophic global warming. We just described all the ways this paper is totally fundamentally wrong. And Bitcoin is not going to cause catastrophic global warming, ever. That's all we have for you today on this October 31st, 2018 edition of the BitcoinNews.com daily podcast. Go to BitcoinNews.com 24-7 for the full spectrum of Bitcoin, blockchain, and crypto analysis. This is your host, Space Marine, signing out. Adios, amigos.